It is surely a great joy to be here today. Uh, Always a great blessing to be able to come together as God's family. I'm very thankful to God for you all. If your Bibles aren't already open to the passage that Jonathan just read here in Revelation 3, I ask that you open them there now. We want the, the focus, as always, to be on God's Word, because that's where the power is. Anyone who knows me very well uh, might know that I enjoy a good cup of coffee. And uh, I often prepare my own coffee at home, but every once in a while I'll go out to Starbucks here close by if I need to get out of the office to do some studying. Uh, I'll go over there. And normally I just get uh, hot black coffee. But in recent years, there has been a lot of advertisement of, of the cold brew coffee. In fact, Starbucks even advertises their nitro cold brew. But you know, all the times that I've been to Starbucks, there's one thing that I've never seen on the menu, and that is the lukewarm brew. And I don't think you ever will see that. Because while you can get different drinks, hot or iced, uh, it's simply not very appetizing to have lukewarm coffee. In fact, this morning while I was studying over my sermon, I uh, had some Starbucks coffee that I I had attempted to reheat, and I found myself continually going to the microwave, kind of reinforcing the idea that I was studying uh, here, that lukewarm coffee is is not uh, appetizing. If you don't like coffee, maybe you can find the same illustration with, with your hot chocolate getting room temperature, as opposed to maybe drinking a refreshing glass of uh, ice-cold chocolate milk. But I recognize here in Revelation 3, God probably is not talking to Laodicea about coffee or tea or hot chocolate. Really, it doesn't specify the the drink uh, here. Maybe he's talking about water. But I think these are modern equivalents that maybe help illustrate the, the concept to us today of this idea of being lukewarm, being so unappetizing to God that he says, I will spew you, or some versions say, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It is unpalatable to God uh, if we are lukewarm in our faith. Uh, And he's not instructing Laodicea here on how to brew a proper cup of coffee or tea or anything like that. He's talking about their spiritual well-being. He starts in verse 15 by saying, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Later on, he'll talk about their true spiritual condition, that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And yet, they're blind to that. They don't see their need for change. What does it mean to be a lukewarm Christian? And and maybe more what I want to focus on today is why is this so much more detestable to God than being either cold or hot? Because I think most times when we think about our service to the Lord, we think, well, we, of course, want to be hot. We want to be on fire for the Lord. We, we want to have great zeal in our service to him. But here he says, I wish or I would that you were either cold or hot. Why is that? Is, is being cold in our faith really better than being lukewarm? If so, why? I want us to consider three ways that lukewarm Christianity 
poses a greater danger to us than really no Christianity at all. And I think maybe the primary point being made here um, is that there's more hope for the convicted than the complacent. Read again with me Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. After calling them lukewarm in verse uh, 16, he says in verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What's the problem? How does he define what it means to be a lukewarm Christian here? He says, you think that you're doing well. You think that that you're rich and you're prosperous and you have need of nothing and you don't realize your true spiritual condition. Why is it that that being cold can, in fact, be better than being lukewarm? Because when we're convicted, there is a greater potential for us to turn to the Lord, to allow him to give us these things that he wants to give us so that we can be transformed, so that we can return to him. And yet when we're complacent, when we're lukewarm and we think, well, we we have enough warmth here that we're, we're doing okay, then we lack the type of conviction that we need to really become who God wants us to be. We don't see ourselves as we truly are. Uh, Because they had become comfortable in their lukewarm condition, they failed to see the need for any radical change. But is this not why the gospel appeals more to tax collectors and sinners than to scribes and Pharisees? On the surface level, the tax collectors and sinners seem to be people that are farther removed from God. And the well-studied religious elite seem to be closer to God. But Jesus says that the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are those who are going to receive the gospel of the kingdom. It's those who recognize their spiritual poverty who are in a better position to receive the gift of God's grace, to respond to the gospel, and to become who God wants them to be. We see this illustrated in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. You remember in Luke chapter 18, it says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. But in the parable, as we see these two men praying, and you see the Pharisee praying to himself and thanking God that he's not like this tax collector, but that he fasts twice a week and he pays tithes of all that he gets. You know, it's, it's not the one who faithfully pays his tithes and the one who uh, fasts twice a week that goes home justified. It's the man who is convicted by his sin And is so convicted that he falls down on his knees before the Lord and beats his breath saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so we need to be aware of this lukewarm state where we think that we're doing okay. We're better off seeing ourselves as we truly are. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 
Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 20 through 22. I'll start reading in verse 20. Here Peter writes, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Do you notice what he says there in verse 21? He says, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. That's a pretty striking statement. And it's really not, if I'm honest, how I would normally think of things. Is it truly better for somebody that they have never heard the gospel? <laughs> that they never responded to the gospel? That they were never baptized for the remission of their sins? He says here, if we have left the Lord, if we have abandoned that, then we were in a better situation before we responded than after. There's more potential for the one who is outside of Christ and knows he's outside of Christ and and knows that he's in a condition that he needs something than the one who has responded to it and yet after responding goes back to wallow in the mire. We see this concept many places in Hebrews 6 and Jesus when he talks about the unpardonable sin as we sometimes talk about it as well of of, uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The the point there is that we we can reach a point where there is no further measure, there's no greater news than what we've already been given. There there is no, you know, once Jesus left and he sent the Holy Spirit, there's nothing more that's coming here. And if we've rejected that, We've rejected the greatest message that God has given. And so there is a sense in which we, being a lukewarm Christian, can be in a much worse state than the one who has never heard, who has never responded. And like I said, this is not how we normally think of things. We normally think of kind of a a linear level of devotion to God And, you know, there's all the way down here where I don't even think about God. And then there's here where I'm kind of a a lukewarm Christian, and that's a little bit better. And then I get here where I'm fully on fire for the Lord and, and zealous. And yet God's telling us that's not how it is. It's not that this is a step up. In fact, this is a step back. Because we are in a worse condition before God if we have rejected what he has given. Like the Pharisee, In Luke 18, we might think, well, at least I'm not like the tax collector, right? And yet what God is telling us is, no, you you pray that you can become like the tax collector, that you can have that convicted heart so that I can transform you. The Pharisee and all his self-righteousness and all the good that he did in one way of speaking was in a much worse state than the one who is convicted of his sin. Just because I've been baptized and I go to church every so often and I know what the Bible teaches on X, Y, and Z doesn't mean that I'm doing better than most people in the world around me. In fact, it could mean that I'm doing a whole lot worse. Is that the way that we view things? That's the way that God views things. 
we need to have the type of heart that we first are convicted so that we might become on fire for the Lord, so that we might be transformed by his grace. But second of all, I think we see throughout the scriptures that the hypocrite does more damage than the heretic. Uh, Not only are we ourselves in a worse spiritual condition when we are lukewarm, but we are doing more damage to the cause of Christ when we are lukewarm. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Here we read, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Think about this illustration for a little bit. It's really very similar to this idea of being lukewarm, right? Um, Here, salt is intended to have a certain flavor, but it, it has lost some of that flavor. Uh, It's lost its seasoning. It's still parading as salt. It still appears to be salt, but all of the trace minerals that that were mixed in with that remain, and the actual salt is driven from. Many times we today refine salt to get rid of those trace minerals, and so we have table salt that's more fit for our food. Here, this process is working the other way around, where instead of refining it to... to, uh, get at that that seasoning, the seasoning itself is seeping away. And so what are you left with? Well, he says it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Luke records Jesus saying a very similar statement here in Luke 14, verse 34 and 35, but he adds it is no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Why is that? Well, if if salt has lost its seasoning, it's no longer good for your food, right? It's not going to season it the way it would before. And yet there's still enough trace of that saltiness left in it that you can't throw it on the field or it'll ruin your crop. And in fact, you can't even throw it in the manure pile because it's going to ruin your fertilizer. We have, have gotten to a state where we are in fact doing more damage than we're doing good. The only thing left for it, he says, is throw it out on the road so that people will trample over it with their feet. And so ultimately, we, in reaching this lukewarm state where we're still wearing the name of Christ, we're still parading to to be a Christian and yet are not reflecting the unique flavor of a Christian and not reflecting the character of Christ, can get to a point where we are doing more damage than good. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, we're told, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is part of being the salt of the earth. This is part of, of shining our lights, is maintaining this distinction in character. In fact, that when people might... Be, be tempted to speak ill of us, they'll be put to shame. That they might see Christ's character at work within us and God might be glorified. But brethren, what if that's not the case? What if when they speak against us as evildoers, what they say is true? 
what kind of effect does that have? You know, it's one thing for people out in the world to live immoral lives. But when we claim to be followers of Christ, and yet we walk in darkness, and yet we don't reflect the character of Christ, we can do great damage to the cause of Christ. We can cause people to blaspheme the, the Lord, as, as David in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 14, when Nathan appro- approaches him about his sin, he says, uh, you have given uh, great cause for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme because of his sin. Is, is that us? When we wear the name of Christ and, and we go to church, and by all appearances you know, on, on Sundays, we, we seem to be religious people, and yet out in our lives from day to day, we're not living the life of a disciple of Christ. What kind of effect is that having on the cause of Christ? And it's not that we ought to try to put on some facade as if we here have no problems and we don't struggle with with sin. We have no weaknesses or insufficiencies. We we recognize we're all broken people in need of God's grace. And yet, we ought not to view sin lightly because if we abide in sin and if our character from day to day uh, is opposed to the, the, the flavor of Christ that we are intended to reflect, then we may just be the unsalty salt that is not good for anything but to be trampled underfoot by men. We may just be the lukewarm beverage that God is going to vomit out of his mouth. And so we need to think seriously about the type of influence that we are having. If you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5, I think we see this distinction between the immoral of the world and the immoral within the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, they're addressing a situation here where there's a man within this church in Corinth who was committing sexual immorality uh, with his father's wife. If you look starting down in verse 9, we'll read together. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Do you see the distinction there in how we are called to treat the immoral of the world around us as opposed to handling immorality within the church? Here, the immoral in the world around us, the sinners and tax collectors, we're we're to be reaching out with the light of the gospel. And yet, we have a greater responsibility when it comes to those within the church. Uh, That we have a responsibility to purge out the evil from our midst. Uh, Ultimately, that they might recognize their spiritual poverty, that they might be convicted like we were talking about earlier, and that they might return. But we're not to allow this kind of lukewarm attitude of continuing in sin and yet wearing the name of Christ to persist among us. Uh, 
That can't be us. That can't be something that we tolerate. Because it will do great damage to the cause of Christ. A literal leaven, he says earlier in verse 6, leavens the whole lump. And so if I think I'm doing pretty good spiritually because I lead in worship, or I teach Bible classes, or I help out with our letter evangelism, or because I have my name in the member directory and show up to fill a chair from time to time, I may just be deceiving myself. If I'm not living the life of a disciple of Jesus from day to day, then going through the motions of church is not honoring to God or making up for my immoral life. In fact, it is insulting God and doing more to damage his cause. What's the answer to that? If I look at myself and I look in the mirror of God's word and I see I am this lukewarm Christian, I am this unsalty salt, what is God's call to the lukewarm church in Revelation 3 and Laodicea? Does he say, well, you might as well just go back to being cold? That's not the point we're making. The point we're making is you need to be convicted and you need to rekindle that zeal. He says there back in Re- Revelation chapter 3, uh, be zealous and repent. And so while we do recognize that counter to our normal way of thinking, being a lukewarm Christian is a worse condition than not being a follower of Christ at all. The answer is not to leave Christ. The answer is to be convicted of our true spiritual condition and to return to him. But I want to make a third point. And that is that the imposter is more dangerous than the irreligious. Maybe it's not us who are the lukewarm. Maybe we look at ourselves and we think, well, no, I, I recognize my spiritual poverty. And I'm, I'm seeking to grow each day. Maybe we are genuinely convicted, but the danger of lukewarm Christianity doesn't just present itself in our own hearts. It also presents itself in Satan's attacks against us and our attitudes towards influences around us. Satan often tries to offer us the lukewarm as a substitute for the things of God. It may not be exactly what God wants, but, you know, at least it's not that. Uh, At least it still has some warmth to it. And that's where Satan starts to get us to call evil good, is by kind of mixing in evil with the good. Because after all, it's not all bad. And we, we see this in Satan's attacks time and time again throughout the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, we're told, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Uh, here, it's, it's not the wolf that waltzes in and says, I'm a wolf, I'm a wolf, I'm a wolf. That is the true danger. We're warned against that which doesn't look to be a danger, that which looks to have a great deal of good associated with it. Later on, uh, we, we also see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15, uh, that there were those who were disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And Paul says, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Do you see this in Satan's attacks against us? Uh, That he, he doesn't come out and make it look 
like the, the, the depth of depravity to us, he uses that which maybe is legitimately good to get us to compromise. You, you think about uh, the very first sin in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. What, what did Satan use to tempt Eve? First of all, he's using God's creation, right? Uh, he really doesn't have anything else to offer us uh, other than what God himself has, has made. But he tells her that she's not going to die, but she's going to become like God. Is being like God a good thing? That sounds pretty good. In fact, that sounds godly, does it not? And yet that's what Satan is using to draw us farther away from God. Did, did Adam and Eve actually become more like God? In one sense, they became more like God. In fact, God later on in Genesis 3 says, Behold, a man has become like one of us. And yet, we see in every way that truly mattered, they became less like God. Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. You remember Satan takes uh, Jesus up to the, the pinnacle of the temple and he quotes from scripture. He quotes from two different scriptures and encouraging Jesus uh, of God's promises. That God has promised that he's not going to let you dash your foot against a stone and the angels are going to take care of you. And yet Satan's using scripture to cause Jesus to misuse his power in a way that was not according to God's plan. We need to recognize that Satan is often going to use things that have some element of good in them to get us to compromise. He's often going to offer us the lukewarm. Anytime we hear ourselves justify something by saying, well, at least it's not that. We need to take caution. We need to seriously consider whether what we're doing is in fact what God would have us be doing. Because that could be the devil talking. You might say, well, yeah, that movie did depict a great deal of immorality, but at least it has a good moral message in the end. Well, yeah, there may have been some drinking going on at that party, but at least there was adult supervision. Or maybe hitting closer to home, well, yeah, that charitable organization is teaching people a corrupt and misleading gospel that may lead them away from obedience to Christ. But they're doing a lot of good. And at least they're exposing people to the scripture. And you can fill in the blank. That music, that book, uh, that Bible teacher, that politician. And I understand that we can't always be idealistic because we don't live in an ideal world. If we only voted for perfect politicians, we'd never vote. Uh, if we only read religious publications with no danger of doctrinal error, we'd only be reading our Bibles. If we only listened to uh, infallible preachers, I wouldn't be standing up here right now. But we need to be serious about compromising. Because Satan tries to get us with something very good. Something like being like God. How in the world could being like God be a bad thing? 
You can't tell me that being like God is not a good thing. And yet that is exactly what Satan uses to guide us away from him. And so, brethren, we need to think seriously in our own hearts and in the temptations presented to us that we are not compromising for that which is lukewarm. Because we normally think of it on a scale to, well, you got your cold and then the lukewarm's a little bit better and then the hot, well, yeah, that's where we really want to be. But God says that's not how it is. That the lukewarm is more dangerous, more damaging, and a worse spiritual condition than if we were convicted of our sin and knew we weren't where we needed to be to begin with. We need to view things the way that God views things. And so what about you today? What about me? Are you a convicted heretic? Or a complacent hypocrite? If you today are convicted, if you realize that you have been lukewarm, then you're in the condition that God wanted those brethren in Laodicea to be. You have the type of attitude that is prepared to receive what God wants to give you. That he can transform your heart if you're willing to give it to him. So don't be the dog that returns to its vomit or the sow that returns to wallow in its mire. Don't be the unsalty salt. Don't be the lukewarm Christian that's going to be vomited out of God's mouth. If you need to be convicted today, let God convict you. Let him do his work within your heart because he alone can give you the true riches. He alone can clothe you. He alone can open your eyes. And so if you recognize today that there's some way that you need to respond to Jesus' invitation, I I want to close by reading what we read earlier in Revelation chapter 3. Starting in verse 18, notice Jesus' invitation to these Christians. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus knocks on the door. And if we open, he says we can have fellowship with him. We can not only sit at his table, he says we can sit with him at his throne. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful hope we have been given. Let's not waste that invitation. If you need to come to the Lord, if you need to repent in some way, if it's of a public nature, something that we can pray for you about and and encourage you with, won't you let that be known at this time? If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, will you let it be known by coming to the aisle as we sing together?